Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. You're listening to Crosswalk with Pastor Steve Winery. Crosswalk is the radio ministry of Calvary Chapel Tri-Cities, and it is our aim to lead you to the cross through the teaching of God's Word. It's the same thing when you have types. So you have types in the Bible. And so one of the most famous types is where Abraham offers up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And in the passage, it lets you know that that the whole event is prophetic. This is gonna be seen, Abraham says, in the mountain of the Lord. And so Abraham's offering up his son, his only son, whom he loves. That's what God says about Isaac. Isaac was a miracle baby. That's what happened with Jesus. Um, They traveled for three days. Abraham thought he was going to kill his son. And so for three days, Isaac is a dead man as far as Abraham's concerned. Abraham believed that he was going to have to go through the slaughter of his son and that his son was going to be raised from the dead. And so there you have a picture of the resurrection in that whole thing. His son is the one who carries the wood up the hill. And then there is a prophecy about the sacrifice. What Isaac says to Abraham is, Father, here's the wood and here's the fire for the sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb. Literally, that can be translated, God will provide himself as the lamb. And then, you know the rest of the story, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Is a ram a lamb? Is it? Nope. A ram is not a lamb. And it's after that whole thing is done that Abraham says that this whole thing is going to be seen in the mountain of the Lord. And that's literally the exact spot where Jesus was crucified 2,000 years later, 2,032 years later. And so there's a real story there. So Abraham actually takes his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, does does, does all of this stuff. God actually delivers Isaac in that situation And there is a typical significance to it. It's a real live event that God uses to illustrate a prophecy about a real live event that's going to take place a couple of thousand years later. And so again, the story itself is something that you have to take seriously as far as the the language that's used and what is actually happening. You can't make it mean anything that you want to. Otherwise, you're never going to get the type in the end. Okay, next thing. The greater part of the Bible makes adequate sense when interpreted literally. So I've already used the feeding of the 5,000. We could talk about any old thing that you're reading about in the Gospels. And so Jesus goes down into the water to get baptized by John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and the Father is speaking from heaven, and John the Baptist realizes that Jesus is the Messiah at that point, and that's what the passage says. What else does it mean? That's what it means. It means exactly what it said, right? And so when you're going through your Bible, pretty much as you're going through the Bible, whatever it's saying is whatever it means, 
So one of the things that we have to do when we're reading our Bibles is not read verses. We read passages. And so you go through the Bible, you read before, you read after a verse that you're questioning, you look at the context, you find out what the author is actually trying to say. And you take the definitions of the words as they are actually given. It's the only safe and sane check on the imagination of man. And so one of the things that we do when, when we're going through, and when I'm going through and teaching here, is I am usually teaching straight out of passages in the Bible. And so you are sitting there listening to me teach, and you're reading it along with me, and you can tell if I'm going with what the passage says. Because you're reading it too, and you're like, okay, yeah, there it is. It's right there. Okay, yeah, I see that. There, there that is. Okay, yeah, that's, that's there, you know. And you, you can see it. You can check if I'm actually teaching what the Bible says. And again, that is the historical grammatical method of interpretation. It's the only method consistent with the nature of inspiration. So the Bible says that the, that the word of God is God-breathed, right? And so God wrote these things down. So is God capable of telling me that he did not actually create the world in six days but that he actually created it in about five billion years. Well, not five billion, but a billion years, call it. Is God capable of telling me that? Then why didn't he? Why did he go through and, and, and say, you know, he created it in six days? You know at the, at the time that there were cosmologies that taught that the, that the universe was radically ancient and that the earth had been around for long ages at the time that Moses wrote that down. And yet Moses comes along and writes down that God created the earth in six days. And he even gives the, the, the progression of creation. Is God not capable of telling me that God started off with a big bang and that he went from a big bang to nebular hypothesis where you have spinning swirl of gas that, and in the center it becomes the sun and all the rest of it. Can, can God not say that? Or does God have to come along with some other type of language that, that, that isn't even close to what the, what the actuality is? And the point that I'm making here is that when I became a Christian, one of the things that I had to deal with was the fact that the Bible says something different than what I was taught in high school. The Bible says something different than what I was taught in college. And these things are either true or they're not. Because if God is God, and he's going to tell me the truth, he's able to absolutely tell me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and get it across to me in a way that I can understand it. And so a lot of times, you'll have guys who go through the first 10 chapters of Genesis and say that these are all creation myths, and they're allegories, and they're this, and they're that. And you know what, you guys? They are not written any different than any other passage in the whole Bible including the passages that talk about the coming of Jesus, including the passages that talk about the coming of David, including the passages that talk about Elijah, including the passages that talk about Paul the Apostle. They're all in narrative form. And so if you're going to go through and you're going to allegorize, what you're, what you're saying at that point is that God cannot tell me what he actually means in plain language. And he's not doing it. And that's obviously problematic. It grounds interpretation in fact. I can take you to a passage and I can read it to you and I can go, 
this word means this, this word means this, because I've got Greek dictionaries or Hebrew dictionaries. This word means this. This is in the present active, in the present active, and this is a noun that's, you know, the subject, and this is that, and I can use grammar, and I can show you what it actually says. And again, words mean things. It grounds interpretation in fact. It exercises a control over interpretation that experimentation does for the scientific method. In other words, justification is the control on interpretations. Prove it is the idea. Prove it. And so somebody comes up with some goofy interpretation of a passage and I go, prove it. Well, what do you mean? That's, you know, that, that's just my truth. I don't give a rip about your truth. That's not what the passage says. Prove it. And again, I can go through and prove that certain passages mean certain things because again, words mean things, right? It has had the greatest success in opening up the word of God. For example, with the Reformation and modern conservative scholarship, all until the 1500s, you had from about 200 AD on, that's when the allegorizing method started, started gaining ground, and then it finally kind of got cemented, and especially in the area of prophecy with Augustine in the 400s. But from that time on, the scripture was allegorized by the Roman Catholic Church in our culture, in Western civilization. And so there were a lot of things that people didn't really know about Scripture because you couldn't know these things about Scripture because there was a whole set of rules and regulations on what these things meant that had nothing to do with what they actually said, right? And so when the Reformation comes along, people are like, we just want to read our Bibles. And so they pick the Bible up and start reading it and find out, oh, salvation is not something that you gain by joining the Roman Catholic Church. Salvation is something that you get by having faith in God. And the reason that they believe that is because that's what it says. And so it's by faith and faith alone that we come into a relationship with Jesus, for example. The next, uh, there are five rules of interpretation and then I'll get done with the interpretation stuff here. Number one, is the interpretation of words. And the, this stuff's going on the screen, you might wanna take a picture of it or whatever. You need to ascertain what's called the usus loquendi. Sorry again about the big fancy word, but all that means is the normal usage of the word at the time. So, usus loquendi, let me give you an example. Cool, that's cool. What am I saying? That's great, could be. What else am I saying? That it's not hot, that it's cold. Yeah, I could be saying that, right? And so, usus loquendi. And so what I have to have is some context. And so if the context is I'm taking out an ice tray and I turn to my wife and say, that's cool. We still may have a problem because it may be a really cool ice tray or it could be cold, right? And so there's a usus loquendi. You know, there's a, a way that people use language. And so you gotta figure out the way that they use language. And so it's not always necessarily what the word actually says. If I say, that girl is hot, what am I talking about? And my wife says, you better be talking about temperature. <laughs> right? Okay? So she, she needs to take her coat off or she needs an umbrella. It could be, mean that she's hot temperature-wise or it can be hot cute-wise, right? 
And so again, you got to figure out what, how the word is being used in its historical context. So interpretation of words, you ascertain the usus loquendi or normal meaning affixed to a word by the persons in general by whom the language spoke, is spoken and especially in the particular connection in which such notion is affixed. And I just gave you two examples of that, right? Then the second one is the interpretation of the context. What is being spoken about? Okay, and so this is again why I tell you don't read verses, you read passages. And that way you're not gonna get yourself into a situation where you're interpreting some passage out of the context of what the, what the author is talking about. And so in this passage that we just read, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Word of truth, are we talking about a physics book? Is physics true? Let's, let's not use physics. How about math? We're using a math book. Is math true? Okay, are we talking about a math book? No, what we're talking about is the Bible. We're talking about the word of God, right? So the word of truth in this passage is the word of God, and you find that out by the context, okay? I don't know that there's any passage that talks about a, a math, but you know what I mean. So second is the interpretation of the context. Third is the interpretation of the historical context. Okay, so for, let me give you another example. Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, says that women are not to wear men's clothing and men are not to wear women's clothing, okay? And so Christians have interpreted that as women cannot wear pants. What women need to do is wear dresses. And that's my interpretation of it. And so all you ladies wearing pants right now, get out of here and go get a dress, right? What did they wear this is Leviticus. What did everybody wear at the time that it was written? What did they wear? Yeah, they all wore dresses. They all wore robes. They're all in robes. And so apparently, and I don't know much about the robes that they were wearing necessarily, but apparently you had men's robes and you had women's robes. You will never see me in Levi's that have little sparkles on the back pockets because those are women's pants and I don't want to wear those and it's not even biblical to wear those, right? See what I mean? And so what, what happens many times is people take a passage and they take it out of its historical context and try to put it into our context and they come up with an interpretation that's absolutely false. The Bible doesn't say that women can't wear the same style or type of clothing that men wear. So women wore robes, men wore robes. Men just didn't wear women's robes and women didn't wear men's robes. That whole passage is all about cross-dressing. It's all, all, all about transgender. And so that's, that's what that's speaking about in the passage. And so it's not talking about anything else there. And so historical context matters. The interpretation of grammar. And so again, words mean things. And order of words mean things. So for example, in Greek, if you wanna emphasize something, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the subject you guys know subject and predicate, and so the boy hit the ball. The subject is the boy, ball is the predicate. And so in Greek, you have a, basically, a, I'm not gonna get into the Greek terms, but you have a subject, you have a predicate. If you wanna emphasize an action or something in a sentence that is important to you, you take it, normally we, we go subject first, verb next, then predicate. That's how we do it, 
okay? But in Greek, you can take the predicate and you can stick it in the front. And what you're doing is emphasizing ball. So it's not the, the boy hit the ball. The boy, or excuse me, the boy hit the ball. And so ball is important in the sentence because it's taken and put in, it, put it in the front. That's grammar. And so that's Greek grammar. And so you can tell when, when things are important in a passage. Then you have the interpretation of figurative language. And that's the fifth one. That's the last one I want to talk to you about. There is a rule that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, uh, unless the uh, immediate context study in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. You have to have a good reason not to take it as it's stated, is the point that's being made there. And so if you're reading a passage and the plain sense makes sense, then that's what the author is talking about. He's not coming up with something different or you know, something super secret that you have to dig into to, to try to figure out. He's just saying what he's saying. And if you take your Bible that way, you're gonna do really well. The Bible contains poetry. So the Bible talks about us dwelling under God's wings. Do, does God have wings? No. God's a spirit, Jesus said, and we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. The Bible says that God has his hand on me. Does that mean that there's a big hand coming out of heaven and it's on me? Is that what that means? No. It's talking about the idea that God is watching out for me. And so there's poetic language that's used in the Bible. And so if you're going through and you're reading a passage, and this is usually going to be in the Psalms, which are songs... And songs are usually poetry put to music. And so you're going through the book of Psalms and you read some, some language there that obviously is different. God has his eye on you. Does that mean that you know, God's big old eye is coming out of heaven and it's on me, it's on my cheek or something? No, that means he's watching me, right? And so again, it's poetic language. And so and that's, this is also called idiom. And so we have idiom, and I just gave you a couple. I've got my eye on you. That doesn't mean that I'm coming over, you know, sticking my eye as close to you as possible, right? It means I'm just watching you. And so the Bible contains poetry. It contains song. It contains parables. It contains metaphor. And so metaphor would be like the evening of life. You don't, you don't have a situation where um, in your life, the last 10 years is nothing but evening, right? It's, the sun never comes up or something. The evening of life is talking about your last days before you go home to be with the Lord, hopefully. So it contains metaphor, it contains symbols. And for example, in the book of Revelation, there's a bunch of symbols. Most often the symbols are interpret, interpreted in the passage. So it talks about Jesus walking up and down in the midst of the golden lampstands. And then it tells you that the golden lampstands are the churches. And it says that Jesus has the seven stars in his hand. And then it tells you that the seven stars are the messengers of the churches. And so it gives you a symbol and then it tells you what the symbol is. And most times that's, uh, that again is interpreted in the Bible. It has hyperbole, that means exaggeration for effect. Okay, it has simile. Um, and, and so simile is, anytime you see the kingdom of heaven is like, 
what Jesus is going to do is give you a simile. So the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took and hid um, leaven in three measures of meal. And he's giving you a simile there. It means something, but it's, a, it's an example that's used to show, show you something from an illustration. It has repetition. It has euphemism. So euphemism is like restroom. When I tell you that I'm going to the restroom, am I going there to rest? Is it the room where I rest? No, it's not. That's a euphemism. And so restroom just, just means the, the potty place. It has apostrophe. I don't want to explain that. Apostrophe is the idea of somebody making an exclamatory remark to somebody that's not there or to a thing. And so I'm exclaiming to the sun. And so I'm saying things at the sun. Can the sun hear me? And so you have this in the Bible. You have, you have that, that kind of thing uh, in the Bible. So for example, with Joshua, um, he says to the sun, don't go down. And obviously what he's doing is he's talking to the Lord, but that's called apostrophe in the Bible. The sun is not actually hear, hearing him. The sun is not actually obeying him. What's happening is he's calling on God to take care of that situation so that he can go on wiping out bad guys. In any case, has apostrophe anthropomorphism. And so uh, God is my father. Is he really? Did he come down and have physical relations with, with my mother and become my father? No. And so what we're doing is using an anthropomorphism. And so God's picturing himself as a father. And again, I've used a couple of others. The idea that God has his eyes on you or that God has his hand on you or that, that God will come along and wrap you up in his arms. Those are all anthropomorphisms. Picturing God like a man, basically. Irony, there are, time, there, there are times when God's making fun, there are riddles and there are typology. And so to demand a wooden literal interpretation of a hyperbole, for example, is to do violence to the text and to miss the literal meaning of the author. And so when John tells you in John chapter 21 that Jesus did many more miracles, and I suppose that if all the works that Jesus did were written down, the whole world could not hold the books that would be written. Okay, so you want to take that literally, what would have to happen is you have to take and write one book, say it's about this thick, and I get done with it and I throw it on the ground, and I write another book and say it's that thick also, throw that on top of it, throw that on top of it, throw that on top of it, and some arbitrary number, say it's 20 feet tall, I take books, 20, 20 feet tall stacks of books, and fill the whole planet with 20-foot-tall stacks of books talking about all the things that Jesus did in three and a half years. Is that what John's saying? Or is he saying, Jesus did a whole lot of stuff that I'm not telling you. And in fact, I've only told, told you a small fraction of the things that he's done. He did a lot more than what I've written down in the book of John. And that's called a hyperbole. And so to take and make that, you know, some kind of literal, you're doing violence to the passage because that is not what John meant. And again, you can tell. And so uh, when, when the Bible is, is using a simile about God is like this or the kingdom of heaven is like this, you don't get to go through and make that literal. Otherwise, you're not taking it literally. 
You've been listening to Crosswalk with Pastor Steve Winery. Crosswalk is the radio ministry of Calvary Chapel Tri-Cities in Kennewick, Washington. If you are interested in purchasing a copy of today's message or wanting to know more about what it means to follow Christ, then please contact our church office by phone at 509-736-2086. You can also look us up online at calvary-tricities.org. There you will find a wide variety of Pastor Steve's teachings to listen to or download for free. If you want to join us for church sometime, we are located at 10611 West Clearwater Avenue in Kennewick, Washington. Our Sunday morning service times are 7.30, 9.15, and 11 a.m. We also have Wednesday and Sunday evening services at 6.30 p.m. We hope you have been blessed today and join us again next time for Crosswalk.